Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. Hey, Crime Salad listeners, thank you so much for waiting patiently for part two and the conclusion of this case of the Long Island serial killer who was just recently captured in July of 2023. And I know that we gave you a content warning in our intro, but please let us give you that extra content warning because this episode mentions sexual assault. And we will also mention the graphic Google searches that this monster searched up, which is all quite disturbing. And it does include children, but don't worry, we won't go into detail and there are some offensive words that we actually left out. But this just adds to the evidence, which points to the fact that the investigators may really have their killer. And well, technically, they had him all along. All right, let's jump in. So to recap. In 2010 and 2011, the Suffolk County Police Department discovered the remains of 10 people discarded like trash along a stretch of Gilgo Beach on a street called Ocean Way. Now, at first, it was thought that the remains were the result of more than one killer, at least three killers. But then, what is odd was that there were so many bodies in one area, and they all had been left there for quite some time. And then there were some partial remains that had been originally buried in the Manorville woods, and they were thought to be the work of someone called the Manorville Butcher. In fact, the toddler's body that we mentioned in part one, who hasn't been identified from the recording of this episode, their remains were found at Gilgo Beach, which were later connected through DNA to a body that was found years earlier in the Manorville woods. So it does seem like the two locations may have some sort of connection. What investigators did find out is that the toddler turned out to be the daughter of one of the Manorville Butcher victims. So what it's looking like at this point is that the man who was arrested last month, Rex Hewerman, could possibly be both the Manorville Butcher and the Long Island serial killer. Now, there was even some thought that the Liska killer could be related to the murder of four sex workers that were found in Atlantic City. However, the FBI has since ruled out this connection. Now, some in law enforcement believe that he may have kept killing during the last dozen years he enjoyed freedom, and his new killing grounds have yet to be discovered, while others believe that he went dormant when his burial grounds on Gilgo Beach were discovered. So if you remember at the end of part one, we briefly mentioned how a new task force identified Rex Hewerman as their main suspect within just six months of police work using all of the original evidence from this case. I know we probably left you with so many questions. How does this happen? 
And that brings us to the Suffolk County Police Department, which was plagued by corruption scandals involving several higher-up officials, which included the police chief himself, who had to resign in disgrace. Many believe that corruption, incompetence, and apathy are to blame for the killings going unsolved for 13 years. I mean, they had all of the answers right in front of their faces for so many years with this case, but it seems like it all got swept under the rug. It just makes me think how many other cold cases right now have all of the evidence stacked up just waiting to be solved but haven't yet completely been solved for one reason or another. And I mean, this is a very well-known case. These murders have been shared over and over again in other podcasts and documentaries. And as we know it, corruption is always going to seep through the cracks. But hopefully law enforcement gets better at not letting corruption take over cases like this in the future. Now, you may have watched the Netflix movie based on this case called The Lost Girls. Well, right before it was to be released in 2020, the Suffolk County Police Department released photos of what they called a significant piece of evidence. It turned out to be the weathered remnants of a leather belt that was embossed with either the letters WH or HM. Now, at this time, the Suffolk County Police Commissioner, Geraldine Hart, said, quote, We believe the belt was handled by the suspect and did not belong to any of the victims. The implication being that they may have obtained DNA from the suspect. And then that same year, the FBI helped the SCPD to identify Jane Doe number six as Valerie Mack, a 24-year-old mother from Philadelphia who had gone missing 20 years earlier. Now, fast forward to February of 2022, when there was a new Suffolk County Police Commissioner, Rodney Harrison, and he did what others believed the old commissioner should have done 12 years earlier. He created a multi-agency task force to investigate the Gilgo Beach killings, using nothing but the original evidence they already had. And they first identified Rex Hurman as their possible subject. And like we said, it took the newly formed task force to six weeks to narrow it down to a suspect, to a case that happened 12 years ago with the same evidence. Then it took another 16 months for the task force to gather enough evidence to arrest him. We will discuss the witness statements that led to his arrest in a little bit. First, let's discuss the man that they arrested. Now, what we know so far is that Rex Hewerman is a 59-year-old architect who was raised and lived in Massapeka Park, New York, all of his life. He worked as an architect in downtown Manhattan, where he had a practice that specialized in code enforcement. He was a husband and a father, and he had lived in his childhood home, which investigators described as highly cluttered. He lived there with his wife, his 33-year-old special needs stepson, and his 26-year-old daughter. Now, according to his website, his daughter also worked alongside her father in his architecture practice. We aren't going to name his wife or his adult children for privacy reasons. Even though investigators have a potential monster on their hands, these family members have nothing to do with the evil that he hid in plain sight. He probably even used them as a way to hide his evil. They absolutely deserve privacy, grace, and sympathy during the harrowing aftermath of shockingly finding out that your dad slash husband is possibly a serial killer. 
it does make me wonder if they ever had a clue or maybe now that they know who this guy really is, certain situations start to come to mind, you know? But all in all, it would be just shocking to find out that this is now your life and you've been living under the same roof with someone who heinously murdered for pleasure. But on the other side of the discovery, the victims are finally getting some justice and their families are finally getting more answers, the answers that they've been waiting for for years. Now, Rex's wife played a pivotal role in bringing this case to justice, which we will discuss a little later when we break down the arrest affidavit. So far, all aspects of Rex's life had been destroyed. His wife has filed for divorce, his business is closed down, and the media has all but convicted him, which, given the evidence against him, it seems like it might be well-placed. Rex is a large man. Some reports say that he is 6'6", if not taller, and well over 250 pounds. He appeared in court on August 1st, 2023, and he pleaded not guilty. He was a full head and shoulders taller than all the other officers and attorneys surrounding him. It's almost impossible not to imagine the violence he could perpetrate on a woman who was the same size as a preteen child. His lawyer released a statement that said, quote, Rex Huberman is 59 years old with no prior criminal history. He is a college graduate and a hardworking licensed architect who has his own NYC firm. He is a loving husband to his wife of over 25 years and an involved and dedicated father to his daughter and stepson. He has entered a not guilty plea and has insisted he did not commit these crimes. There is nothing about Mr. Huberman that would suggest that he is involved in these incidents. And while the government has decided to focus on him despite more significant and stronger leads, we are looking forward to defending him in a court of law before a fair and impartial jury of his peers. Now, Rex wasn't the only person with something to say. His wife released a statement, too, through her lawyer. Her statement reads, quote, On behalf of my family, and especially my elderly neighbors, who have also had their lives turned upside down by the enormous police presence, in addition to the spectators and news crews, they deserve to live peacefully. They should be able to walk their dogs and go to the grocery stores without cameras shoved in their faces. I am pleading with you to all give us space so that we may regain some normalcy in our neighborhood. And her attorney went on to say that his client had no idea about her husband's alleged actions and the flood of public attention has been extremely overwhelming for her and her two children. They described the days following Rex's arrest as chaotic and emotionally traumatizing. One neighbor said, quote, We have been here for about 30 years and the guy's been quiet, never really bothers anybody. We were all kind of shocked to tell you the truth. And as I said, we're shocked because this is a very, very quiet neighborhood. Everybody knows each other, all of our neighbors. We're friendly. It's never been a problem at all. Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney said in a news conference following the pretrial hearing that the evidence against Rex has amounted to 13 years of investigation. He said it's a massive amount of evidence and it's continuing since the investigation is still ongoing. In fact, he originally said that he didn't want to arrest Rex right away as they continued gathering evidence. However, the warrants into his burner phone activity and his computer searches became so concerning that they had to weigh the risk to the public over compromising their investigation. In layman's speak, 
They were worried he was going to have contact with a sex worker that would put their lives in danger. Some of his searches are so vulgar and obscene, we've chosen not to share them with you. However, I'm going to mention a few. A few of the computer searches include Mistress Long Island, Mature Escorts Manhattan, Girl Begging for Rape Porn, Pretty Girl with Bruised Face Porn, Torture Redhead Porn, Skinny Redhead Tied Up Porn, Asian Twink Tied Up Porn. Okay, so for that last one, in case you were wondering, a twink is a contemporary slang used to describe a specific stereotype within the gay community. A twink typically refers to a small, young, slender, often effeminate gay man with a youthful appearance. So that last search is interesting because one of the victims was a petite Asian man found in women's clothing. Originally, because of his sex and ethnicity, he wasn't believed to have been one of the victims of the Long Island serial killer. Now, police believe that all of the victims found on Ocean Way, whether they have evidence to prove it or not, are likely related to the same killer. Now, there were a number of more vulgar computer searches that included 10-year-old porn and descriptions of young girls that honestly make me want to throw up. So we're not going to list them, but I'm sure you get the idea. Just understand that this guy gives off extreme creep vibes, but yet his wife probably didn't have a clue. Or maybe she did. We don't know. So based on Rex's alleged sexual interests, expert forensic pathologists have surmised that he is likely a sexual sadist who can only obtain sexual gratification through the torture and pain of his victims. Specifically, he chose women who had bodies that resembled young preteen girls. Experts in behavioral analysis said since it was too risky to go after his preference, he chose sex workers who were small and petite in order to avoid being caught the kidnapping of a young child would get a lot more media attention than a missing sex worker. It's not right, but it's just how it is. So this guy has a sick interest, and I'm pretty sure his family didn't know about all of that. But what's even more telling is that police also found several email accounts that they tied to Rex's home or office IP address. One was named the T-Hawk account, which conducted in excess of 200 searches between March 2022 and June 2023. Those searches were related to active and known serial killers, specifically the disappearance and murders of Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello, also known as the Gilgo Beach Four. Tell me that's not just a coincidence. Those search terms included, why couldn't law enforcement trace the calls made by the Long Island serial killer? Why hasn't the Long Island serial killer been caught? Long Island serial killer update, Long Island serial killer update 2022, FBI active serial killers, serial killers by state 2023, map of all known serial killers, unsolved serial killer cases, 11 currently active serial killers, Name of relative of Melissa Bartholomew, name of relative of Megan Waterman, the Gilgo Beach Killer, Criminal Minds, new phone technology may be key to break-in case.
And if for whatever reason you think that Rex is innocent and you maybe find this all just a coincidence that he is searching all of these things, he used the same email account which was used to search for a number of podcasts and documentaries regarding the investigation, as well as repeatedly viewing hundreds of images depicting the murder victims and the members of their immediate family. Rex also used the T-Hawk account to search for and view articles relating to the task force that was investigating the Long Island serial killer. Now, we've mentioned before that he has only been charged with the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. It is expected in the coming weeks that the charges will be amended and he will also be charged in the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Now, let's discuss the single piece of evidence that originally identified Rex as their prime suspect. It was witness testimony regarding a first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche truck that was identified as belonging to the last person to see Amber Costello alive. It was this same truck that was parked outside of his home for quite some time, and it was even captured on Google Maps. And he didn't go about trying to get rid of it. But it wasn't until the newly formed task force was able to track down ownership of the truck to Rex Hewerman, who happened to live in Massapeka Park and who worked in downtown Manhattan. The dots are finally connecting. Those are two of the same places that the task force was able to track down the burner phone used to contact each of the Gilgo Beach 4 murder victims. The rest of the evidence is a result of over 300 subpoenas in this case. They discovered Rex's cell phone records corresponded with cell site locations for the burner phones used to arrange meetings with three of the four Gilgo Beach victims. One of the same burner phones was tied to phone calls that he allegedly made to Melissa's sister, where he would call her a, quote, whore, and described the ways that he tortured her sister before she died. They also traced it to a phone call placed by police to Melissa's cell phone, and also the calls that he made to Maureen's phone to check her messages after she disappeared. Investigators also believed that he used both Maureen and Melissa's phones to make taunting phone calls to their relatives explaining how they were tortured before they died. He also asked their sisters if they were, quote, whores too, and if maybe he would do to them what he did to Maureen and Melissa. Now, in the disappearance of Maureen, there were allegedly 16 interactions between her phone and one of Rex's burner phones on the day that she disappeared. On July 9th, 2007, the last cell site location where Maureen's phone pinged was at 11.56 p.m. in Midtown Manhattan near Rex's office. And then three days later, on July 12th, 2007, there were two outbound calls made from Marine's phone checking the voicemail messages from a cell site location near Rex's home. In the disappearance of Melissa, she was last seen on July 10th, 2009. Between July 3rd and July 10th, Melissa's phone was contacted by a burner phone allegedly belonging to Rex. Melissa's phone traveled from Massapeka Park to Midtown Manhattan, And then on the 11th, it traveled again from Midtown Manhattan back to Massapequa Park, where Rex lived. And then on July 17th, July 23rd, August 5th, August 19th, and August 26th of 2009, Melissa's phone made taunting phone calls to Melissa's sister. The calls were from a male who admitted to killing, sexually assaulting, 
and torturing Melissa before he killed her. Police narrowed down that most of the calls were within 2,000 feet of Rex's home or Rex's office. Now, Megan Waterman was last seen alive at a Holiday Inn in New York. On June 5th, 2010, Megan's phone was contacted by another burner phone believed to have been in Rex's possession, which had been activated just that day. Megan and the burner phone communicated several times until video surveillance showed her exiting the Holiday Inn for one last time. Megan's phone traveled to Massapeka at 3.11 a.m. in the vicinity of Rex's house. Now, Amber Costello was last seen alive on September 2, 2010, as she was leaving her home in West Babylon. At the time she disappeared, she was thought to be working as a sex worker. Now, the day before that, September 1, 2010, Amber's phone was contacted by a burner cell phone believed to have been in Rex's possession at the time. And during those communications, the burner cell phone was connected to a cell site tower near his home in Massapeka Park. Then the burner phone traveled to West Babylon in close proximity to Amber's home. The burner phone made contact with Amber's phone on September 2, 2010 at 12.05 a.m. According to one of Amber's roommates, a, quote, prostitution client showed up at their residence. Amber and her roommates were running a scam on some of these clients. They would have the client enter their home and pay Amber. And only after Amber had been paid did one of the male roommates aggressively open the door and pretend to be Amber's outraged boyfriend. The roommate would accuse the client of cheating with his girlfriend, and the client, not wanting any trouble, would leave without the services he paid for. Since the clients were essentially robbed in the act of solicitation, none of them reported it to the police. Now, based on the roommate's description, he said that the man was white, large, approximately 6'4 to 6'6, in his mid-40s with dark, bushy hair. He said that the man had big, oval-style 1970 eyeglasses. He also described him to the police as appearing like a large ogre. And now that we've seen Rex Heuerman, that description is pretty accurate. Now, remember when we mentioned that the Chevy Avalanche truck was the original piece of evidence in this case? Well, we're about to explain that a little bit further. Amber's roommate got a good look at this truck and gave the description of first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche that was parked in the driveway of the residence. It was this clue, which they had since September of 2010, that broke this case and led them to Rex Huberman. A database search showed that he owned the car, which he later sold to his brother in South Carolina. They realized that Rex was extremely tall, would have been the right age at the right time, lived in Massapeka Park, and had an office in Midtown Manhattan. Two of the places where many of the victims' phones and burner phones had been around at the time of the murder. And also, according to Amber's roommate, he told the pretend outraged boyfriend that he was just a friend and to tell Amber that he would give her a call later. Then he calmly walked out the door. Rex wasn't as naive as past clients had been. He figured out that he had been scammed and he was mad about it. A few hours later, the same burner phone was back near Rex's home and sent a message that said, quote, that was not nice to do and I have credit for next time. Amber told her roommate that the same client contacted her again and he was willing to pay even more money, but he didn't want to meet her at her house again because of her boyfriend. 
The next night, the same burner phone located in Midtown Manhattan contacted Amber again to arrange a date. A few hours later, the same burner phone was near Rex's home in Massapeka Park. And at 11.17 p.m., the cell phone traveled from Rex's home to Amber's home in West Babylon. Amber walked out of her home to go and get into Rex's Chevrolet Avalanche and was never seen alive again. Now, of particular interest is the whereabouts of Rex's wife. Out of respect for the family, we won't be naming her even though she is named in court records. The task force discovered through phone records and travel documents that Rex's wife was out of town, specifically out of New York and in Iceland, visiting relatives at the time of the murders. Travel records showed that she and her children left the country between July 8th through August 18th of 2009. This was during the disappearance of Melissa Bartholomew and the phone calls made to her younger sister. Now, as you know, there is a lot of cell phone record evidence that supports this case. But cell phone records weren't the only evidence the task force had against their suspect. They also had forensic evidence tying Rex's wife to several of the victims. And like we said, she was in Iceland during the murder. So how can this happen? Well, during the course of the investigation into the Gilgo Beach Four, investigators recovered foreign hair, either on the bodies or inside the burlap bags, which contained the bodies. When Maureen's body was found, she had been restrained with three leather belts in a torturous stress position. One of the belts was used to bind her feet, ankles, and legs together. On that belt was female hair, and it was found on December 18, 2010, and determined to be a Caucasian head hair fragment. However, when it was resubmitted in 2022, it was found to have been belonged to Rex's wife. Police called this personal transfer of DNA. And another victim, Megan Waterman, her body was also found bound in a torturous stress position, However, she was bound with white duct tape, and on this duct tape, police recovered more pieces of female human hair that were recently found to belong to Rex's wife. And also, Amber Costello's body was bound in the same position, and this time using three pieces of clear tape and white duct tape. Another strand of hair belonging to Rex's wife was found on a piece of tape inside the burlap bag. Now, could she be a suspect? I mean, she very well could be. But on the other side, I'm kind of thinking about how badly I shed. My hair is found all over the place in my home, in my car. I mean, it could have easily been on a blanket, on Rex. I mean, Ricky will even complain sometimes that he found my hair in his shirt or his pants. Now, during the examination of Megan Waterman's skeletal remains, they recovered a male hair from the bottom of the burlap sack that contained her body. And they matched the DNA from that piece of hair to pizza crust collected from Rex's trash can outside of his office. Now, Rex was a married man. However, that didn't stop him from creating a Tinder profile where he identified himself as Andy using the alias Andrew Roberts. He used another burner phone to access this account, as well as an email account identified as Springfield AOL. The Springfield account was attached to a different burner phone. This shows that Rex had a tendency to use multiple burner accounts at the same time. Both of those burner accounts were also associated with, quote, prostitution-related contacts with either sex workers or massage parlors between 2001 and 2023. Both of these cell phones were used near the same towers near his home and his office. 
Now, when police noticed an increased activity with the inquiries of sex workers, it caused concern for their safety. The task force determined that it was and is Rex's custom and practice to use multiple burner phones and multiple email accounts to arrange to meet sex workers. He also used these phones and email accounts to conduct extensive searches for violent, sadistic child pornography. Since Rex's arrest, police have conducted several extensive searches of his family home, a storage unit, his office, his car, and a shed in his backyard. It's thought that the task force will find additional evidence tying him to several of other victims. Of note, it was reported that police discovered a concrete cell in his basement. Later, it was determined that it was really a gun vault for his prized gun collection. And during the search, investigators recovered over 250 guns in his possession. In an article by USA Today, in New York, there was a study from the Sex Workers Project at the Urban Justice Center that found that 80% of the street workers who responded to their study reported experiencing violence or threats of violence while working. For many sex workers, the arrest of Rex Hewerman represents justice for the Long Island victims. So now that there is a face to the ogre-like description of the long, unknown, Long Island serial killer, the media and the public have an intense desire to know everything about this guy. We want to remind our audience that as of the release of this episode, Rex Hewerman has not been convicted of anything. Right now, he still enjoys the presumption of innocence. And this story is still developing. If Rex Hewerman pleads guilty or is convicted, we will cover that in a separate episode. If you find anything interesting about this case and you would like to share it, you can always do so on our Crime Salad discussion page or in our Patreon if you'd like. And those of you who are Patreon members or premium subscribers on Apple, thank you so much for supporting our podcast. We extremely appreciate it. I hope you enjoy the ad-free listens and occasional bonus content on there. We do have three new patrons that I would love to shout out. This week we have Amanda, Christina, and Carla. Thank you so much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We really appreciate it. Have a wonderful week, guys. We will be with you next week with a new episode. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to Counterclock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.